Um, Mom, stop butt dialing. Dude, she... I don't... How do you even do that with an iPhone? Yeah, like, your phone would be on this. Like, like how would it open? I don't get how that's possible. It must be a flaw with her phone, right? Yeah, it's like the eighth call. She's definitely not saying anything. No, she's... Last time I picked up and she was ordering bagels. What time did she get? I, I don't know. I just heard, yeah, I love a bagel... Hey guys, welcome back to Direct a Podcast, episode number 19. My name is Kurt Schneider. And I'm Keenan Wetzel. And today's episode is brought to you by Eightfold Creative and Film Supply. Film Supply is a full-service licensing agency that houses incredible, highly curated footage by myself and hundreds of other filmmakers. If you're looking for footage to fill the gaps or just building treatments that need inspiration, check out filmsupply.com. Great job. Thank you. In today's episode, we're speaking with director Clara Aronovich. Clara is an LA-based director that has seen success in both the narrative and commercial spaces. And we chat with her about her upcoming web series, how she went about getting representation, and lots of other stuff. So and loving Detroit. And loving Detroit. So yeah, I'm gonna shut up and here's Clara. Press play. Hey Clara, thanks for being on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. Of course. So let's kick things off. What's your Desert Island movie? One film you can watch for the rest of your life. What would it be and why? That's such a cruel question. Oh, we like to <laughs> we like to start it off cruel. <laughs> um, I, for me, I, I just there's the like film, the cinephile, you know, like film nerd answer, and then there's the like the film viewer answer and I want to have compassion for myself on an island who's stuck with one movie <laughs> for the rest of her life you know yeah. so for me I, I was thinking it should be something that has both dramatic and comedic elements because I'll die if I just live in the world of the dark movies I love to watch all the time ad infinitum so it felt like Boogie Nights was a, was a solid answer because I find it both like hysterical and so dark and also superbly made yeah I, I think that's a good answer. That is a good answer. Thanks. Keenan loves <laughs> loves him some PTA. I do. Oh yeah. As as we all kind of do. As do I. So yeah, you gotta. So what kind of got you into filmmaking? Um, and, and kind of like what what turned it into a reality for you? Um, what got me into filmmaking? The the straight up like inciting incident was that I was in a school play when I was seven, and at that point, like performance related art related trajectories or what was what I that's what I wanted to pursue um and the fact that my brother who's almost eight years my senior was already interested in filmmaking and my dad's a cinephile and my mom was a creative person by nature it was just all those things conspired to make me kind of inclined towards film and by the age of 10 I was already filming stuff all the time and also I I grew up in a town that happened to have a really beautiful old well-maintained theater that just showed exclusively old movies called the Stanford theater. And I think it was just kind of a mix of all those, those things. Um, but honestly it, it started with theater and shortly after progressed to film and then it being a reality, I, I, I honestly just don't have much memory of time before film in my life. Mm. Um, it was just always what I intended to do. Um, but I can say that, you know, it felt certainly more real each time I came to LA. I spent two different summers in LA 
when I was in high school. Um, and one of those summers was to go to a film camp where I worked on 60 millimeter for the first time. Um, felt pretty like that was a substantial step forward. And then also when I just moved to LA, when I moved here after under, undergrad and to pursue my graduate degree. Um, but every day, <laughs> every day it feels a little more real. <laughs> yeah. So who, so who are some of your, your biggest filmmaking inspirations? Um, these days or just generally? Uh, I mean, it could be people that were a big impact early in your career. Or it could be people that are big impact now. Sure. I, I mean, these days Yorgos Lanthimos is really doing it for me as a filmmaker. I'm really obsessed with his cinema and I feel as though it's, it's much closer to the, the kind of stuff I'd like to be doing. Um, so I'd say him, I'd say Ruben Ostlund as well, the guy who did Force Majeure and did The Square. Um, but looking further back, obviously, you know, we just talked about Paul Thomas Anderson. He was a tremendous influence on me. And then in American filmmaking, like Kubrick, um, though I guess you could, you know, I guess some people would consider him a British filmmaker because he lived there for so long. But Kubrick and, um, and uh, Cassavetes made a big impact earlier in my career for sure. And then... Uh, who was I thinking about just yesterday? Oh, Billy Wilder, actually. Billy Wilder's writing was extremely impactful. Um, and then what really got me, I was already in love with film, but what made me feel like I had a whole new like season of appreciation and just romance with cinema was when I started really pushing into um, foreign cinemas um, when I was younger, like, you know, the filmmaking of Ingmar Bergman and Tarkovsky and then the Czech New Wave I remember really blew me away when I first started watching like Milos Forman films and Ivan Posser and then, you know there's folks from all over the world who've just along the way really blown me away and kind of altered forever how my path was moving and including included in those people would also be like Hao Shaoshen and Jane Campion and Andrea Arnold um, I feel like for every season of my life there's a filmmaker who made a big impact. So you're talking a lot about like, um, you know, narrative filmmaking. Um, was there ever a moment where you realized like short form content could be kind of a viable, a viable thing, whether it be commercial or, or short films was, you know, there was a realization in that. Um, good question. Honestly, I, I feel like my realization was more the opposite, having to realize that it wasn't super viable, <laughs> at least for short, short films, like short films, you go into film school, and you think like, oh, shorts are my way in. Um, and that's true, but they're just not financially viable. Um, a short film, when people say they're like investing in a short film, I often remind them that they are donating to a short film because mm -hmm. there's very limited market. What's nice is these days, thanks to like different online purveyors and curators of short form content, there might be some money in short form, but even the music video industry has contracted substantially mm -hmm. um since since i was growing up watching music videos back i remember when i was watching fucking total request live really dating myself here like and you know those are like multi-million dollar britney spears videos mm -hmm. whereas today you you might see the occasional million dollar plus video for like rihanna but the briefs that come across my desk range from like ten thousand dollars or ten thousand pounds to you know 40 and 40 is like a good one mm -hmm. um so the only way that short form was made clear to me as a viable um, pursuit was in the commercial world, which I really resisted at first. I felt like, no, you know, I'm an artist. I don't want to do that. And I feel silly even repeating that <laughs> now. 
knowing what I know now, but um, I had to come into the realization, I would say in my mid-20s, that commercial was the only way I was going to make money as a director um, until people paid me to make features, and I have no idea when that's going to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and I was going to get to this later, but since we kind of started going down this uh, this path, I guess mm-hmm. talk a little bit about this web series that you mentioned to me that you have coming up and um, how how is that? How'd you find funding for that? And talk about that the web series as a medium. Sure. Yeah. Web series is something that web series are, are, are things that like really popped up by surprise, I think, for a lot of us folks. I don't know how you guys feel about them, but like I, you know, I grew up dreaming in features. I feel like when I think about story, I think in 90 plus minutes. Um, and then maybe I think in one hour increments or half hour increments, it's just like how your brain is trained. And, and now that, that the internet is the way that it is and people's attention spans are the way that they are, like web series are things that people are buying. Um, and those, and the shorter production schedules and the shorter script lengths, you know, like a lot of folks are aiming for around 10 minutes or 15 or less, just makes them all the more viable. And so... Um, for the longest time, I didn't really pay attention to them. And then it was when a colleague recommended me to the this particular studio with whom I'm working on this um, particular series called Adaptive. Um, that's when things shifted for me. The Adaptive asked if I had any serialized ideas. They had watched my shorts and music videos and read a script of mine and decided to meet based off of that. Um, and when I said, yes, I have this idea, which is the one that we're going to be filming hopefully this fall, um, it, that that was it. They they expressed an interest in buying it, um, and the money is not high. There's not a lot of money in web series just yet, um, but it's something. And at this point now, we've been given the big, you know, two thumbs up. Now that I've turned in all the scripts, um, and and it's pretty surreal because I finally, after all these years of really fighting for it, I'm going to get to direct something that's longer form. It'll be about 75 minutes in total of content um, for this one narrative. Um, And it's in a format that I never dreamed of Mm. of pursuing, but I'm really excited about it. And I'm excited to shoot it in Detroit. Yeah. Shooting it, shooting it in our city. What, what made you decide Detroit? Um, What made me decide Detroit? (laughs) Originally I had thought I just seen this, this story happening, transpiring in, in a city and my mind went straight to New York because New York is actually not that unfriendly to shoot in, um, at least permit-wise, uh, and under a certain budget level. Um, but I felt in, increasingly that that was kind of a boring choice. Um, I, in a lot of what I write and a lot of what I, I pitch and, and the treatments I write as well, I, I try to write for places that I, I don't see a lot, I get very bored with seeing LA over and over again. I don't know how you guys feel, but I'm kind of tired of it. And I'm tired of characters who look and feel the same and who have the same kinds of problems. It, and so New York just felt very boring to me okay. as much as, as, as lovely a city as that is. And so I started to look elsewhere and the story itself, the content of the story itself lent itself to a city that has kind of a more textured past and present. And Detroit is extremely layered and really beautiful, but it's complicated. Um, And it's also a place where you can be a big fish in the pond. Uh, And my lead character is a very big fish in his pond. He is someone who wanted to stay where he grew up, which is a feeling that a lot of Detroiters have. He wanted to keep his fortune and fame there. He's a self-made man. And Detroit's also a place where if you have 
done really well for yourself, especially as a black man, as my protagonist is, you will be noticed. Like people, you are a big fish in that pond. So it was kind of a perfect place to set this one particular person for his journey. Um, and on top of it, it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful and haunted city. And I, th I find it to be extremely cinematic. Absolutely. I completely agree. <laughs> um, so let's jump back a little bit. What are what are some of your hobbies outside of film? Hobbies outside of film. For the longest time, I would have said none. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm often at risk of that being the case when people are like, what do you do outside of film? I'm like, watch movies. <laughs> um, but no, I, I'm a pretty avid outdoors person. Uh, I camp a lot. I climb a lot. Um, just being in mountains and trees makes me very happy. Um, so I try to do that as often as possible. And do you think that's that's an important important for your well-being and, and for you as, as a director? No doubt. Yeah, it, it definitely keeps me sane, especially because I live in a concrete jungle that's in the middle of a desert. You know, right. um, L.A. is and I, you know, I've been in LA for 10 years and I finally found my corner of it that I love, but it's, it's not where I would have chosen to live were it not for cinema. And mm -hmm. if it, if I didn't get the opportunities that I get to leave and, and be in mountains and be around snow and trees that change colors during the fall, I would certainly have lost my marbles more than I already have. I'd have <laughs> fewer marbles. <laughs> well, do you think, um, you know, hiking and being outside and stuff like that, do you think that is some type of help with your, you know, we talk a lot of artists about their inspiration, where they find inspiration. Do you, do you think kind of taking your mind outside of um, filmmaking um, helps with your creative process? No doubt. I'm sure, I'm sure it does. Like, I, I think LA is very noisy, not, not literally per se, but, you know, just like energetically very noisy. And there's just a lot of people doing a lot of things. Everyone's got a script. Everyone has a pilot. Everyone has a band, mm -hmm. you know, like, and it's really useful to just depart and to be in spaces where I am not connected to others via the internet, um, where I'm really just sat with myself and my issues and my, and my interests and my curiosities. And, and also, even if I if I go on a hike or a trip and I do no thinking about work, but I just think on, I, I just am, I just get to exist as a human, that necessarily makes me a better writer. Because in the end, what we're in the business of doing is writing characters and making stories about real people. Um, and it's important to dial in to yourself sometimes if you're going to be able to write another person, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're you're rep by CIA. How how were you able to get representation by them, and what does their involvement in your career look like? So CIA was, I think it's a great example of of like how things can actually work. Because I, I I was like most people out there when it came to representation. I just thought like oh you know, maybe you make something and then the agency comes to you, or like you submit something and then they come to you. And in the end, like actually getting representation or actually getting funding it's like usually a result of like a weird web that you didn't even consciously weave and my representation by by CAA is an, an, an example of that and the like first thread of that web leads back to like film school when I took a scene writing class that I wasn't even supposed to take because I was a production student and this was a screenwriting school class and I made an impression on one of the other students, I suppose, because a couple of years later, he wrote me out of the blue to say, 
hey, I remembered your writing. What are you working on these days? I love to read whatever your latest script is. So I sent it to him. And thanks to him, he, well, he read it. And at that point, he said, I'd love to send this to some of my manager friends. Is that okay? And I said, sure, of course. And then based off of a couple meetings I got from him, um, I got signed by Three Arts um, for my management. And then I was with Three Arts for a couple of years, going on a bunch of general meetings with that same script and with other scripts. Um, and through those general meetings met um, a gal who was working at a company on the Warner lot and struck up a good relationship with her. And then she read my newest sample from a couple years ago. And she, without even mentioning it to me or my manager, sent it to CAA saying, I really think you got to take a look at this gal. Um, at which point CAA was like, we would like to. And I had a meeting with my, the man who's now my agent. And it was just a really good mind meldy, like warm, fuzzy little meeting. And it just felt like a good fit. And that is how I ended up getting represented. And you can trace it so clearly all the way back to just being a good student in a class, <laughs> you know, and that super guy, organic. It's super organic and it's random. I, like if there's anything I wish I could have told my younger self, although I wouldn't have listened because other people told me this, it's like <laughs> to try and loosen your grip, you know, like because you have no idea where it's going to come from. I had no idea that that guy from that class who, by the way, I thought didn't like me. I thought he was like, oh, here's this fucking like director bitch taking one of our writing student seats, you know. Um, and he's when he's gone on to produce multiple features, several of which have gone to Sundance. He's a super talented uh, filmmaker. Um, and it's that dude that I technically owe a lot of my life to now just by random by random kismet, you know. Um, that's how this shit seems to go down. So can you uh, talk a little bit about the Isaac uh, Gracie film and how that that happened? Sure. Um, so the Isaac Gracie video um, came to me through my uh, UK music video rep. Um, I'm repped by Opie um, over in the UK, and they sent me the brief and the track. And it was a, an artist of whom I'd never heard, but the track really, really moved me. I mean, it's such a beautiful track, and his voice is so exquisite. And you know, as you do when you get a music video brief, I just listened to the thing over and over and over again. And it, I remember it was very early this year, early 2017, that I received that track. And it was a really dark time. <laughs> um, I think Donald Trump had just been inaugurated or was about to be. Uh, and I was bumming and feeling a lot of feelings that I know a lot of us were feeling at that time. And some of us still feel like kind of hopelessness and fear and um, and so the idea that you see on the screen kind of just came out of my subconscious. And what's interesting is I pitched it verbally to my reps at first. I didn't uh, write the full treatment because the idea felt a little too expensive for the budget. Mm -hmm. um, and they, for the first time, they, they, I don't want to paint them as not supportive because they've been extremely supportive of my weird sensibility since they signed me. But um, for the first time, they were like, you know, we actually don't love this idea. <laughs> They're like, I'm not feeling this one. Um, and it does sound expensive. I was like, oh, shit. Okay. Well, fair, you know. And I went along on my merry way. And then they wrote me saying, you know, crazily enough, we verbally mentioned this idea to the commissioner, James Hackett, who's an amazing, amazing music video commissioner. Um, and he was like, hold on, what, what was that idea? And they're like, oh, it's this. But 
it would take a little bit more money. And he's like, no, I'd, I'd love to read a treatment for it. <laughs> At which point they're like, oops, like, <laughs> can you actually write a treatment? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like delighted because I, I really wanted to make it. Um, and they agreed to expand the budget a little bit and, um, and then agreed to make it. And so I, we shot in the UK with this um, Dutch DP, Evelyn Lawford, um, who's London-based, and it was scrappy. It was definitely a bit of a peeler. <laughs> um, but, you know, we got really lucky in some ways. Some of those locations I still am like, I can't believe we got. And, and our lead actors, the, the young dude and chick, were just so sublime. And, and, you know, the UK just has this beautiful quality of light because it's overcast 90% of the yeah. time. Um, so it really lent, you know, lent itself to the, to the melancholy of, of the piece. And, and that's how that came together. What, what's your strategy look like in producing something like that with so many locations and so many different actors? Um, it seems, seems like it'd be pretty complicated to, to produce. Yeah. No doubt. Um, I so the production company I'm with in the UK, uh, Gas and Electric, they've produced. Um, and strategy number one is if you can afford it, and if you're lucky enough to like to find a producer, you know, like if I had done that by myself, I would have really it wouldn't look nearly as good as it does, and I certainly wouldn't have known the lay of the land. Especially if you're shooting overseas or out of your own city, you need a fixer. You need to, you need people who know people and who know the space better than you. I really don't love it when directors kind of just you know fly in someplace and and claim to have some sort of authority like the reality is you know it's unless you're from there you're you're gonna miss something and so that's that's point number one is to partner with the right people who are local and then number two we shot i'd say if not exclusively the 99.5 percent natural light um and that is a major reason why we were able to pull that video off mm -hmm. in particular it's so many shots i mean it's a long track too they didn't even mm -hmm. they're like oh is there maybe going to be a radio edit you know is there a three minute version they're like nah it's going to be a six minute song we're like fuck <laughs> 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 you know on like what was i think a fifteen thousand pound budget total you know yeah and you know i didn't make a cent like my i don't think the producers made a cent but you know that i would never recommend to another artist to not take a rate. I think it's important for us to be able to stand up and take the money that we're owed. But, you know, if you're really desperate and you have a way to put food on your table that month, that's a whole other option available to you is to just forfeit your rate. But I've been doing that for years and I don't recommend it. Yeah. yeah would you speak a little bit more about that? Because I think that's a common thing, you know, all creatives run into, mm -hmm. but like uh, the balance of like putting your own money into projects. And, yeah. and kind of what, you know, what results you've seen from that and would you recommend that? No doubt. I mean, you're we're talking at a time that is kind of transitional for me because honestly, guys, like from when I graduated from film school till this year, I I was just like it was a no brainer for me to just mm -hmm. forfeit. I didn't care. I, I've gone through parts in my times in my life in which I prioritized paying for a movie ticket to watch a film over eating, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'm, I, and, and that sounds very, very dramatic because the reality is I'm fortunate enough to have like there, I won't be homeless. Like I right. have, I, if I were to move back home with my folks, it would feel like a tremendous concession and a failure. There isn't a film industry where they live, but that is an option. And there, I want to mm -hmm. recognize that there are people in my position who don't have that, who don't have 
families who support them either emotionally, financially, or with a home to fall back into. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, in the end, if I were super, super screwed, I, I have some advantages that I could, that I could use, but I try not to, I'm at this, I'm 31, you know, like uh, my choices are my own. They're not my parents. And, uh, and for me, I'm, it was after a music video director colleague of mine, um, sat me down that I changed my ways a little bit about forfeiting my rate because I started to observe that like I wasn't, my career wasn't growing, um, at the rate that I wanted it to, or, or at least that I, I just felt kind of stuck. Um, and some of those are for reasons that I have nothing to do with, you know, the gender thing is non-negligible, but like it was a female music video director who's done quite well, who sat me down and she was like, Clara, I used to forfeit my rate and I stopped and here's why. And, and all of her reasons were really poignant and that conversation is really salient in my mind because I think even when the budget is itty bitty, like if, if this is all you do, you have to at least for the practical reason of needing to survive, get paid for your time, even if it's minor, but also just as a gesture of self-respect, you know, um, if companies acclimate to you devaluing your time then it seems somewhat necessary that they will not value your time either. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that being said, I would, I'm very allergic to directors who are greedy. Like I don't ever, I, I don't want a lot, you know, all I've mm. ever wanted in my life is to make cinema. That's it. I've never wanted a fucking Tesla. I've never, you know, I don't need it as long as I can survive and support myself and whatever family I may end up having. And I get to make movies. I'm good. It's when people start getting greedy that really bums me out. Yeah. But in the in the end, you know, if you I don't know if you guys are interested in writing in addition to directing. Writing's an interesting is an interesting field with regard to compensation because people see like on the WJ minimum schedule like, "Oh, you know, you get paid like five figures minimum to write a screenplay." But they forget that it takes like sometimes many years to mm-hmm. write a screenplay. Right. You know what I mean? And that's the thing, like, even if you're doing a $10,000 music video and you take $1,000, you take a tenth of overall, which is your right as a director, you might feel like an asshole, but think about how many days and weeks and maybe months you're putting into the project mm-hmm. that, that, that you're precluded from working on something else, you know, right. it's, it, it becomes to a certain point, at a certain point, foolish, um, rather than like valiant to not take some sort of compensation. That being said... I've also just spent a bunch of time and resources this year making a short film with an Indiegogo campaign and putting some of my own money in. Um, and I just knew that that meant that it was going to be a really financially tight few months. That was a trade-off yeah. that I was willing to make. Um, and so, you know, because you asked me, you know, what would I tell other people or what I advise doing that? I, I'm in no position to say whether you can do that or not. Like I said, some people have you know, resources on which to fall back. Some, I mean, and there's plenty of kids in LA who are completely supported by their families. And I frankly don't begrudge them, you know, good for you. Like at least you're doing something with your life. Yeah. Um, instead of just like lounging on a yacht somewhere. <laughs> but you know, if there's something that you're exceedingly passionate about, I'm, I'm generally of the, in the camp of trust future you to f- just figure it out, you know? Um, and I've, I'm so far, I'm still here, you know? Um, and it's worked out, but I think, I think the answer changes as you get older and as the projects change. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. <clears throat> I think there's, I think, like you said, there's a middle ground for sure. It's like the, an area of funding your own stuff, but at the same time, you don't want to be doing that for your whole, your whole career. People will yeah. start to not, if you don't, like you said, if you don't value your time, then, um, others might start to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, you kind of, you kind of touched a little bit on, on the gender issue and it uh, brought to mind something that we were talking about when we met a couple of weeks ago, free the bid, um, mm-hmm. a really cool program that I was not familiar with until you brought it up to me. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and why you think it's uh, such an important movement. Yeah, so free the bid, and I, I'm not a, I'm no expert on it, so forgive me if I get any of this wrong. Um, it's just an attempt to to bring some balance to women, female directors, uh, in getting opportunities in the in the commercial workspace. Because basically, as you guys know, but maybe some of your listeners don't, like the way that commercials get made usually is that a brand is in some sort of relationship with a with an ad agency, and they come up with an ad campaign. They have commercials that need to be made, and they put out a deck or a brief, and that goes out to production companies who have directors on their rosters or to collectives. And then directors compete. They bid for those jobs. Um, and uh, and then the bids, how many bids are presented to the client is something that the agency is the arbiter of. And who those filmmakers are is also a decision that, is the agencies um and in some cases as you guys know like it's a direct to client job sometimes you know maybe it's just an in-house agency but that's basically how things go and what ends up happening is that how the if you let's say that a client receives only three bids for this commercial and all three of those bids are are presented by a team with male directors attached women aren't competing, right? We, we don't have an opportunity to grow our reel. Mm-hmm. Um, and women, unfortunately, were, and this is something that's at this point been studied somewhat extensively, where we tend to be hired based on our portfolio or our past work, whereas men tend to be more readily hired based on potential. Mm. So it's really important for women to have a good, strong reel. And we're considered to be kind of dead weight on a lot of rosters because our reels aren't as competitive. And the reason is that we from the beginning haven't been even put up for the same volume of jobs. Um, so obviously if you don't, if you don't have the opportunity to get the job, then you definitely don't get the job at all. And if you don't get the job, you can't put that on your reel. Mm-hmm. And if you can't put something on your reel, you can't get a new opportunity. And yeah. it's a cycle that self perpetuates and, and it ends up also validating the people who think that women can't do the job because they look at our reels and they think they're less competitive. So I think it was Alma Harrell who started free the bit. I could be wrong. Um, uh, but she she is a really accomplished director. Uh, she used to be a partisan. I don't know if she is any longer. But she basically was like, fuck this. Um, I want agencies and clients to commit to including at least one woman. I think that's the directive, at least one woman in each round of bids. And that's it, you know, and just start considering women and trying to see past the fact that we're disadvantaged, that we have fewer opportunities to build our reels, that it's not that we're worse at our jobs by some crazy biological coincidence, we all <laughs> yeah. are bad at directing, <laughs> you know? It's like, no, we've been held down. Um, and inviting agencies and, and, and uh, clients to 
quote unquote, take a risk on us, mm-hmm. you know, and to bid on our potential the way that they're more comfortable doing with men. And so if I'm not mistaken, the website is basically also a roster in and of itself. There's just a shit ton of female directors who have a lot of commercial experience who should make no client or agency person nervous to hire. Right. Um, so also not only does free the bid talk liberally about what the problem is, and I recommend everybody go read it. It's like just got just a few short blurbs on the problem that are really good sound bites that you can then repeat to other people. Um, but it's, it's also a place where the excuses run out because there you go. There are a bunch of women that you could hire. You can't say, Oh, we don't know who they are or where they are. They're right there. Um, and so that's what free the bid is. And again, I might be getting pieces of that wrong, but I think the gist is right. Well, and, and, and I kind of want to dispel or talk about one of the, the things that we certainly hear a lot is like there are less female directors or less women going into filmmaking. Can you speak okay. a little bit about about that? Because I think that's something that would, people will make the argument that they'll say, well, there's there's 90 to or 90 to 10 percent, you know, male directors. Um, can you kind of yeah. can you just, you know, talk about that a little bit? No doubt. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm far from an expert to the point where I could sure. state the numbers super definitively. But from what I remember, I believe women are represented in equal measure at this point in film schools. Um, and it's not like we leave film school and we're, we all of a sudden Don't want to work decide, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> have decided to become secretaries. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, or, or someone's assistant until the day we die. Like, that's right. not what happens. Um, it's just such a layered problem and mm. there's like it, like it's like a steeplechase right it's like there's like all these different isn't aren't steeplechases the great track reference like go, yeah that's what's up <laughs> <laughs> right steeplechases have like all those different kind of obstacles involved. yeah well it's yeah it's got like the two big hurdles and then one of them has a water pit after it i knew i knew you'd have my back Kurt, yeah <laughs> on the track right <laughs> i got you you got me um yeah it's 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 that like okay so maybe it wasn't hurdle number one that got you you know, barrier of entry to the market number one. Maybe it was hurdle number two, and maybe you mm. made it past those two hurdles, but it was actually the water pit, and maybe actually it was <laughs> yeah. the exhaustion, you yeah. know, or the heat. Like, the way I've described it, like, trying to make it as a gal, as a female director, is, like, making it as a director is hard for anybody. Right. Anybody, unless you are one of those fortunate few whose, like, parent was one, and you have a bunch of money, they were a successful one. And, and you just kind of get grandfathered in, which is rare, you know? Unless you're that person, it's hard. I liken it for anybody, male or female, to having to hit, like, let's say, 10 bullseyes in a row, which is hard. Mm-hmm. If you're not great at archery especially, like, that's a hard thing to do. Now, imagine that you have to hit 50 bullseyes in a row, and that's your barrier to entry. May, like, so there's, so there's so many more opportunities for things to go awry for a gal um, than for a dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not to say that you know, a dude might not, you know, hit nine bullseyes and just not make the 10th. And that sucks for him. But like, imagine how maddening and more complicated it is. Like, it's not just that, you know, we, it's not not like people are dumb enough most of the time to just straight up say women can't do the job. It's much more insidious and it's much more, it's just like, it's just, it's a subtextual layer that's coloring everybody, you know, like if it's not, something subconscious in the mind of the person selecting the directors to bid being like, ah, I'm kind of attracted to her and that's complicated for me. Or like, Oh, I would, I would take this young director under my wing, but I have a wife and she's going to think that there's something there. So I'll just take the guy, you know, if it's not that, then it might simply be something as like, Oh, you know, 
her reel is different or like I, you know, she intimidates me or, or I don't know what, man. Some people just don't fucking like us being their bosses, you know? Yeah. Oh, she's mm-hmm. not, I don't want to grab a beer with her or like, I don't fucking know. I, you know? I think it's certainly an important issue that sometimes I, I personally think it's kind of glossed over because you think of the United States being, you know, just itself being 52, I think, percent women. Like, it's not an issue we talk about as much as one versus one. We talk a lot more about racial issues um, or or we do talk about racial issues. But certainly this is a, a, a big conversation to be had as well. So, yeah, it's a know. big it's a big gap and, and it's awkward because like. It, you know, once you dip your toe into the extra intersectionality of things, like I think it's fair that we're talking about um, the fact that black people are getting murdered. Absolutely, you know? like, yeah. And like that's, it, but it, it it makes it really hard to talk about anything, you know, mm. because like is it? I think it is more imminent that if I get pulled over and a black man gets pulled over, there's a chance that he'll die, and there's a very high chance I'll get let off. Um, but then that is to that's its own thing, you know. And yeah. It deserves the attention it gets, and well, specifically, yeah. Well, specifically with like employment is concerned, and like yeah. the recent backlash, um, you know, in in like with Oscars and award shows and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's a conversation. Like you know, it was it was you know the the gender is not as prevalent, in my estimation. Again, this is just me. I have no facts on this. As um, maybe some of the the racial, and I'm not speaking about what you just mentioned too. I'm just speaking merely into uh, creative employment of in, in these positions. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, f- I feel you. I, I think, and I agree with you. I, I I'm excited by how what was the award show that we just had the Emmys? Was that the Emmys that just happened? Yeah, and Reed Morrow yeah. won Best Director. Yeah, Reed, yeah, Reed Morano winning Morano, is yeah. is is really thrilling. Um, and especially because she was, she's an ASC member, and the ASC is white and male. As yeah, fuck, Young, y'all. <laughs> youngest member ever. Youngest member ever, and she's got. I mean, if that's not a visual storytelling genius right yeah. there, I don't know what is. You know, and and it's and it, and what's interesting is she one telling a story that a lot of people wouldn't have greenlit just a year before. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, Handmaid's Tale is obviously female heavy, female driven, and dark as fuck. You know, mm-hmm. and people didn't think that those were stories people wanted to see um and that there was that people thought there wasn't a market for that but there there clearly is and wonder woman proved that you know billions of times over um and i think it's it's overall an exciting thing the truth is just that female women's lib tends to come later um Mm -hmm. women got the vote decades after people of color got the vote um and that's just kind of that yeah I, i don't like it i don't like it you know but it is what it is, but what what I can say with certainty is there's no dearth of women who want to do this job. Yeah. Um. And and now at least that there's noise being made, it's going to be a lot harder to ignore. But what's interesting is that the percentage of direct female directed larger budget films went down um, in the couple the past couple of years. If I'm not mistaken, I think it went from like nine to seven percent between like 2014 and 2015 or something. Hmm. Very interesting. It's a bummer, <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, and that's that's a moral entitlement issue. There's a great podcast that Kurt, I think I mentioned to you, the, the Malcolm Gladwell one, the way yeah. it vanishes. The first episode is yeah. about that phenomenon. People also, this is the one backlash thing that I would urge you guys to keep in mind as you talk to others about it. Is the second we start talking about racism, or the second we start talking about feminism, 
or the second we get a black president, people start to feel like, oh, okay, the work is done. Mm. I'm not racist anymore. Yeah. And so they kind of act however they want. In some cases, they act worse. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I think that's also part of what's happening is people are like, oh, well, I, I did my job. I, I hired that one woman, and now we can go back to just working with David all the time. You know what well, I mean? And I think the people that were big advocates kind of ease off, ease off the gas a little bit because they think – maybe think that they've, like you said, they've gotten, they've accomplished something. So they're like, oh yeah, we kind of did it. So I don't have to put as much focus on that. And they kind of ease off a little bit. And then I think that kind of, yeah, it's a slippery slope. Mm. Certainly have seen that. Certainly have seen that effect racially. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where people feel like, okay, we made progress. And then we clearly have. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I know. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Gladwell was talking specifically about for a portion of that that podcast that there were spikes in you know race racially motivated hate crimes mm-hmm. post Obama. Yep. You know, not a decrease, which is ridiculous if you think about it. You're like, what the fuck is wrong with these people? Right. Um, well, and I, I just feel wall. like a president like Trump could have never been elected if it weren't for somebody like Obama being before him. You know, precisely. Certainly less yeah. likely. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a brilliant piece in The Atlantic, I think it was, about exactly that. That, like, it's, it's, uh, Trump is, well, that's a different, maybe that's a different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, but I, I think, agree with you. But I think the point you're making is that, in the challenge you kind of, you kind of say, it's like, you know, like, we feel like we're making progress on things. It's to continue the, the kind of the push and not, totally. like, we hired one female director. Hey, we're, we're good to go. Like, yeah. for a year. No, it's like, doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Clara, we're, we're really excited that we were able to have you on here. The, the one, the one thing we've had, we've had people reach out to us about has been, We've had multiple girls reach out asking for us to have a female director on here, and it's kind of, kind of sadly, our we're we're modeling the industry. We've had yeah, you're the, this is the nineteenth episode, and you're the first female we've had. So, um, you're you're oh, our first honor. step in the right direction. But um, <laughs> we're gonna keep trying though now. Yeah, yeah. But I guess uh, you know we we always end with what's what's some advice that you would give to your younger self or advice to uh, future filmmakers. But I think, I think it'd be great if you would, if you could gear yours towards specifically female filmmakers and um, maybe what kind of mindsets um, they should have entering their career in film. I, um, you know, generally I would say to, to the, to the female filmmakers or the filmmakers of color who are encountering the same boundaries, like, I would just caution against expending too much energy on obsessing over that reality. I know I've been guilty of that. Like the reality is simply that we have both arms tied behind our back and we are trying to hit 50 bullseyes in a row Mm -hmm. and that's fucking hard. But you know, there, try not to lose too much of your precious, precious energy and time on that because the reality is that your, your time and energy is more important. Um, you, it like, we have to work harder for longer to get half as far. So the time we waste on how poorly we're being treated or on the fact that it's harder is gonna hurt us more. Um, it only widens the gap. Does that mean completely ignore it or be an apologist? No, um, but try not to be too distracted. And, and what I do generally prefer to do is just give more, is just give broader advice across the spectrum because what my ultimate dream is, is that I'm not a female director. I'm just a mm-hmm. director, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm not one of those gals who 
endeavors to only hire women in key positions and to only work with other women. I just want balance. That's all I want. Um, and and I do caution people against being too divisive in in the name of doing good. In the end, like just be 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 the best person and collaborator you can be, and that's advice to everybody. I always talk about this with with my friends and, and, and to myself and, and to the young younger folks too, is like, you're your own brand. And I don't mean that just when it comes to the kind of work you're doing, but how you're doing it, you know? If you, whether you are in a position in which like, you have to be twice as good to get half as far, or you're in a super privileged position, just be a good collaborator, you know? Pick up your phone and like answer your emails and be a good presence on set and be a professional and keep your side of the street clean and do good work. Like that's all it ever comes down to in the end. Like, because what that that's the only shit you do have control over. Bingo, bango, bongo. Outro. There you have it, guys. That was Clara Aronovich. You can queue up with Clara's work at ClaraArnovich.com. That is C-L-A-R-A-A-R-A. <laughs> oh my god, I can't do it. All right. Greetings, Clara. All right. Here it is again. C-L-A-R-A-A-R-A-N-O-V-I-C-H dot C-O-M. Uh, that's going to do it for this week. We will see y'all next time with a new director. 